Risk Management Monthly, August 2014. I got Greg Henry on the line, and we have our special guest, Dr. Greg Rosalind, who is in uh, Texas, and who has written this extraordinary piece called The Medical Malpractice Rundown, a state-by-state report card. A small snippet of this was in EP Monthly, which is the rag that Greg and I are privileged to write for each month, where we give our opinion of the worldview we have and they actually tolerate us doing it. Yeah, they're willing to put up with our dementia and the fact that we only have two neurons left, which are holding hands. And, oh, God, it's, it's really bad. But I didn't know this till we started. But Texas Greg, young Greg, handsome Greg, is also a Michigan man. And although he's in Texas, I bet he longs for being up here where it's 75 degrees and there's a a light breeze off of Lake Michigan. It's fantastic, Greg. I still bleed maize and blue and always will. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, Um, Ricky, you're sort of the only guy without a Michigan degree in this thing. So No, no, you're wrong. You are wrong. Actually, I I am a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family Practice at Michigan State University. Ah. Did you hear what he's saying, Greg? Michigan State. I heard it. Oh, no. (laughs) Go green. Oh, no. (laughs) Not good. All right. Let's get down to business here. All right. So, listen, Greg wrote this. Well, Greg, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because what was in EP Monthly was a snippet of this 50-state analysis one by one that you did, which was published in AAEM's newsletter. But it's just extraordinary that you would have the time. And I was wondering whether you were in prison, you know, or or had some time on your hands extensively that would allow you to write this. Yeah, Um, you need a larger life, Greg. You need a larger life if you're doing this stuff. (laughs) Tell us about it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how it all started. In 2012, my wife looked at me after a particularly cold January in northern Indiana, and she said, uh, Greg, this is our last winter here. And after 35 years in the Midwest, we decided it's time to look for some greener grass and, and more importantly, warmer weather. And so I started the relocation process, and as I was getting into it, I realized there really isn't any good resource out there that compares all the different states and and what it's really like to practice there and at least from a medical legal standpoint and so my wife and I sat down and she wanted a city and state with good shopping and I wanted a city and state with good med mal and so we landed here in Dallas and here we are and as the dust settled in 2013 I, I, I went back to the guys at AEM and I said I want to do this. I want to put together this resource for for guys like me, docs like me in the trenches who are just looking to see what else is out there. And, you know, maybe docs who are looking to relocate, docs looking to do locums, maybe even docs that are coming out of residency. And AEM responded by saying, well, that's a great idea, but ASAP beat you to it. They they put a report card out in uh, 2009. And and I said, well, I I know that, but I, I want to take things a step further. I want to do it my way, my own criteria do my own research, and I want to take it a little further and not just focus on the reforms themselves, but include some intangibles, incorporate some conversations with docs all across the country, and really get an idea of what it's like to practice in these states, at least medical legally. And 
So that was pretty much it. AEM said, all right, we'll support you. And Andy Walker and the editors of uh, uh, Common Sense were wonderful as far as helping me organize some data and help develop my ideas. And so here we are. So if you, if you look at the last year of Common Sense, we've, we've had a little snippet of 10 states each, each issue. And then the summary piece was an EP Monthly in July. Greg, is there any place on the net where this whole compendium of the 50-state analysis is available, or is there some painless way to get this? You, you know, it, it's interesting. Right now, it's just published in in Common Sense, and and ironically, though, I've actually had a lot of docs reach out to me on LinkedIn and things like that, uh, asking for a copy, and and they actually wanted my notes. I, I have some spreadsheets that show all the different figures in terms of average malpractice premiums and per capita payouts and things like that. So, I guess you got to go through me or Common Sense. Well, yeah, it seems like that, that if this could be put up on the Internet, that it would really be a, a really a, a powerful asset for the 40,000 physicians who do emergency medicine in this country. And I, nothing has ever been done like this. This is a monumental work. What you wrote in EP Monthly was basically a kind of a, a summary, and you focused on 10 questions that are the results of feedback that you've gotten from friends, colleagues, and common sense readers. And could we just go through those? And then Greg Henry, I'm sure, will add his dollar's worth of uh, commentary because I think that this is absolutely uh, phenomenal. And uh, Greg Henry is the one who basically found this thing and said, "We, we need to do this, and he sure was right. So I think, number one, we could probably intuit this. Number one was what constitutes a good liability environment for emergency physicians. And I think we know that malpractice premiums are zero. There are no malpractice cases against anybody. There uh, there are no lawyers in the state. And that constitutes a good liability environment for emergency physicians. Well, no lawyers isn't necessary, but it's a state where you do not need a hunting license to shoot them. That would be the ideal state. And uh, we, we, you know, and they reproduce rapidly. Uh, that's because, you know, they're always, quote unquote, somebody. And we do have to keep them under control. They're, they're very dangerous. But I, I want to set one criteria here before we start. I want Greg to agree with this. A number one, each state has environments within the state itself. Because I do a huge amount of this work. If I've looked at the things on my desk, my states follow your rankings almost to the, it's unbelievable, it's uncanny with the number of cases. But within the states, if you're in uh, Wayne County, Michigan, if you're, if you're in Detroit, the Democratic People's Republic of Detroit, you're going to get sued. If you're in, in uh, Kent County, where Grand Rapids is, it's 20% of what it is in Wayne County. So to, to we, we shouldn't be naive in our listeners thinking, oh, if I moved to Michigan, I'm just fine, or to Texas. There are good and bad areas within the states. Greg, amplify on that. Abs- absolutely. If you're in Holland, Michigan, or Traverse City, or up in the Upper Peninsula, where it's it's hard to even get physicians to go up there, uh, things are going to be different. And, and and I think what you're, what you're hitting on is that 
all of these states, uh, it's such a complex equation that, that deals with politics and supply and demand and really regional culture within these states. And the politics you mentioned that, that goes on in Wayne County, you completely hit, you, you hit it exactly. But one thing I want to comment on this is that I showed this this particular part of the article to the editors of Common Sense, and and they won't mind me stating this, they uh, vehemently disagreed with my definition here. And, and this has been kind of a... Uh, a very heated discussion in recent months. And when I wrote this, and when I started writing this article, one of the things I focused most on was money. It, low malpractice premiums and caps. And and that is how I answered this question. And the more I think about it and the more I speak to other people, I don't think it's as much about money as much as it is. I, I think the most important thing in a state is that if I'm a practicing physician there, I don't want to be successfully sued if there has been a bad outcome and I did nothing wrong. That, I don't care if it's $2, I don't care if it's $2 million, that I think is the most important part of an ideal malpractice environment. This is the emotional cost of going through the process. And I, I, if you're a, a longtime listener, you know we've had people on this program who have wanted to tell their story to the world. We have emergency docs who have been offended by the process. And this is how we strike out. We form organizations. We, we write books. Uh, we have people who've written books on malpractice simply because they got sued. And it was the psychological weight of being under the stress for five years that prompted them to respond. Can we move on to the second question, the best, the worst, and the watch list? Absolutely. I'd have to get the notes out in front of me, but but definitely I know that the, the top four, Texas, California, and I, I believe I put Kansas and Colorado. And the, the thing that's similar about those top four is they all have that $250,000 cap on non-economic damages. And, and I know that's a real hot button issue within the medical legal community, but that's just how all the numbers came out. I had my criteria and I thought, wow, you know, they all have this special cap. So maybe there's something to be said about that. Well, you know, there's a referendum in California. That's the way we do things here. If you get 500,000 people to sign a petition, there's a referendum on the ballot. And, and now the micro, which was the ruling about the $250,000, which has been in place for like 20 years, being challenged and their people are saying at least increases by the cost of living and that would mean that micro would have a cap now of about 1.1 million dollars if that went through this this referendum also calls for drug testing of physicians who are involved in incidents that is kind of part of the uh, politics of getting this passed by the people so this is going to be a real interesting battle unfortunately there's going to be a lot of money pissed away on both sides to, because this is going to go, this is going to be an arm wrestle to the death here in California. Because unfortunately, that initiative did qualify for the ballot, and so in November, it's going to be real, real, real interesting. I'll tell you right now that this uh, drug testing of doctors was put on there for only one reason: oh, yeah. to make to make it palatable to sort of you know uh, pinheads out there who say, yeah. Those doctors are probably snorting uh, coke and then killing my kid and all that stuff. You know what? There's nobody's got a paper out there that says that that emergency docs are running around and there's an increase in bad outcomes when the doctors use drugs. In fact, 
I haven't seen any literature to that base. This thing was stuck on by the plaintiff's attorneys in an attempt to get the average voter to say, yeah, we ought to do this. And they're not going to think much about the dollar figure, which is attached. Right. This is agreed that this is an attempt to get the sympathy of the laymen who have a third grade reading level. You also talked about the worst states, and we really know about those from just a little hearsay. You put Illinois, but East Coast, New York, D.C., Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, this whole cluster of states which is basically considered to be, you don't want to go there. And I don't if know whether... If it touches the Atlantic Ocean... <laughs> Beware! I, I mean, you didn't say Florida, Rick, but if I look back on my 2,400 cases, Florida, particularly Dade County, Florida, sort of leads the parade here. And anything that touches Philadelphia, all you cheesesteak guys, oh my God, the Philadelphia lawyer is not an exaggeration. It is the strangest state I ever do business in, and uh, it's, it's, it's like a death wish if you actually touch Philadelphia. Now, you go over toward Pittsburgh, the center of the state in Pittsburgh, eh, it's like being in Michigan. Of course, nothing's like being in South Dakota, but then again, <laughs> <laughs> they've only had one emergency medicine lawsuit in the last five years or something. Yeah, uh, Greg pointed out that the OBGYNs and surgeons in New York City and Philadelphia pay north of $100,000 per year. To put that in perspective, we have a very interesting way of, of paying malpractice insurance here in California. We, we pay by the patient, which makes a lot of sense, rather than paying by the doctor. So, you know, our, our malpractice premium is in the neighborhood of, oh, maybe 5 $6 a patient kind of thing. Now, I don't know, that used to be what it was a, uh, a few years back, but that, that's the ballpark. And so if you're collecting an average of 120 or $130 or $140 a patient, $5 a patient, really, it's hard to beat your chest and kind of do a lot of whining and complaining, <laughs> yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah, if you're collecting that, which some places aren't. But, but uh, Rick, times have changed. You still think a Coke ought to be a nickel. Maybe a big Coke ought to be a dime. <laughs> Actually, those numbers have gone up a little bit. Sorry to drop this, Sonia, all of a sudden. But, you, mean, uh, you know, you're not going to be paying five bucks for each emergency visit in Philadelphia. I promise you that. No, I doubt, I doubt that. And, you know, we're considered to be one of the good places with regard to malpractice insurance. And then on the top of the list is, you know, places like Texas where... Greg has migrated to. We've we've covered the Texas thing ad nauseum with regards to what happened in 2003, where they changed their constitution, changed all kinds of the rules of evidence, the uh, periodic payments. Man, it was like doctors flooded into Texas uh, because of this reform. But Greg, you asked some really really good questions in your paper. You said, "Does this new system work for patients?" And the answer, honestly. No, it doesn't. The idea of getting a case taken by an attorney using Texas rules or even California rules, there's just tons of examples of people who have been harmed who cannot get access. And you also asked, number two, how these new laws decrease the practice of defensive medicine. And we've, and the answer's we've, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, and we pointed out that Texas has averages their Medicare costs average a little bit more than the national average. So the idea is that we're going to stop doing all these unnecessary tests and procedures. That's just a fiction. And 
honestly, I believe that that has been true, and this has been borne out unequivocally in Texas, where it's been it's night and day. And the last thing you asked are patients who have been genuine victims of of malpractice in Texas receiving the compensation they deserve. Well, you know, I don't know about the compensation. I don't think they get their day in court. Period. Yeah, I, I can amplify some of these things. I know my Texas colleagues won't want to hear me say it, but but this definitely has not helped curb defensive medicine, at least. And for all the reasons that you've talked about in other programs, emergency physicians, first of all, you just don't want to be wrong. You don't want to miss anything. You don't want to get that bad peer review. And a lot of the, my partners in Texas actually trained and practiced in the 80s and 90s when Texas was actually one of the worst states. A lot of people don't know that. So all of that defensive attitude, they really haven't changed. It's, it's hard to dial that back despite all of these nice reforms that have put into place. But one thing I want to mention about Texas, I, I know we've talked about all these reforms ad nauseum about the caps and, and the, the gross negligence reform. But one thing that Texas does, and a lot of people don't give this attention, is that they have a very powerful medical board. And when you approach a plaintiff attorney and said, say, hey, I'm a patient, I've been injured, what can you do for me? They say, go complain to the medical board. And they use the medical board's response to sort of ferret that out. And the medical board is not like, I, I got to say this, it's not like the Indiana medical board where I used to practice. I mean, this is a medical board that takes every complaint very, very seriously and to the point that it's, it's somewhat annoying for physicians. But they will take all this seriously. And they, then the patients, if it is something that, that appears meritorious, then they go back to the plaintiff's attorney and, and maybe they'll take the case. But I, I do agree with you that we maybe have swung this pendulum a little bit too far in this state. The next thing is, which states have seen the most change in recent years and why? And we, we got the Texas thing covered. Ohio, as turns out to be a good state to practice in, in terms of medical malpractice. You pointed out that litigation dropped 41% following the enactment of transformative reforms in 2004. So in many ways, it, it kind of mirrors Texas in terms of it, it was at the same time frame that this also happened. You point out that Pennsylvania, which was really one of the bad boys, reforms were passed in 2003, again, the same time as Texas, pointing out some things that were good. Medical practice claims have decreased by 44% in the state. And catch this, Greg, they're down 65% in Philadelphia. Which That's because when you started an infinitesimally high number, Rick, sixty-five <laughs> percent means that you know you do you look at emergency physicians by suit per for twenty thousand visits or thirty thousand visits. Again, if you're in Dade County, Florida, one in every six thousand emergency department visits will be sued upon. If you're in the state of South Dakota, it's one in 80,000 visits or something. I mean, those really are the differences across the country. And it's, uh, it's huge. So Philadelphia came a long way, Rick, but it's, it, it's not perfect. It's still not Valhalla for us. And, and I understand that. Greg, you also point out that Mississippi is down 50%. And North Carolina is also got this cap on pain and suffering. You know, a lot of those caps I hear are getting reversed. I mean, have you been following that trend? I have. I, I've heard about Florida and, and their cap, and obviously this, this cap in California is, is under fire. Yeah, I think that uh, people are basically, you know, taking these to the courts, and at least some courts are saying, 
no, you have a right to uh, access to a, a jury process without a cap. And so I think they've been reversed in, in a, a handful of states. It's kind of like a libertarian view that says, you know, the fact of the matter is, is no, you, these caps aren't fair. In, at least in California, they're not saying the cap is unfair. They're just saying that it is not kept up with inflation or anything like that. I mean, when this cap went in place 20-some years ago, for $250,000, you could buy, you know, two houses. And now you can't buy a garage for $250,000 here in California. And, you know, there is some truth to that. Number four is which reforms have had the greatest impact? Greg, where do you stand on that? Well, there's all this data that, that shows that these states with these caps really have cut their litigation down significantly. And I don't know if I totally see the cause and effect regarding all of that. I've always been a big fan of the uh, medical review panel. And there are uh, a good amount of states that, that do this pre-litigation process. Indiana is one of them. Uh, where I used to work, and I found that to be very effective, and I think other states have had good success with that too. Greg, I Henry, think. I think uh, uh, go ahead, Greg. I was going to ask whether you had a, a one of these panels in uh, in Michigan now, where you have to go before them before you can, and and it has to show some meritoriousness. Yeah, we don't have that. In fact, we've got uh, really nothing. It's uh, you're going to sue or not sue. You get 180 days notice that they're going to sue you and that but there's no intermediate step which will resolve this case i've done a lot of work in indiana and i think in general the system there works quite well the other thing is the the overage situation in indiana their cat fund where you have to qualify to get into the cat fund is brilliantly administered it's it's got a surplus of cash as opposed to pennsylvania where it's broke. And so here's another thing that's really unfair to some patients. You can get into some of these cat funds, and if there isn't adequate money to cover the overage, you're sort of out of luck. And so it's, uh, it's, it's not a simple question. By the, by the way, the problem with malpractice is it takes so long from the actual incident to resolution of the case, it's hard to see trends as they're developing. I think it's very difficult to say what happened in the last two years or three years changes a long-term outcome. Greg, you also talked about uh, which reforms have had the least impact, and you mentioned um, apology laws, and it's not really clear what they have done, although uh, we did mention in a previous recording that, at least in California, (laughs) There was a person who said, I'm sorry, it was my fault. And the second part of it was the part that was not covered by the apology law. And so it's like, you just have to say, I'm sorry, and stop there, I guess, in California, when it seems so logical to add the the other part. But that was viewed as a, a admission of guilt, and it didn't go well in the court when that person uh, admitted that. You also talk about this a loser pay thing in Alaska. What what is that about? Well, it, it it's it's really not that effective. It it just isn't used. It, just from what I understand, it it's it's collected in very very rarely, and I think it's no more than twenty percent of the winners' fees. So it's it's almost a negligible law. It's great in theory. 
You know, we may have skipped uh, over this thing whereby one of the states have raised the bar on uh, going from negligence to gross negligence, and that made an interesting column in EP Monthly regarding two well-known physicians claiming that a physician had committed gross negligence, which snowballed into this idea where the state basically says, man, gross negligence, we got to talk to you in terms of your licensure, your ability to maintain your insurance and those kinds of things. Have you run into that, which is one of these unintended consequence kind of things? I haven't. There are a number of states that have have used these laws, and I just, it's great in theory. I just, I, I see what's going on in Georgia, and this is just an absolute mess. This is just not how this this law was intended and now it's 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 just becoming a disaster and i just i hope that doesn't happen in some of these other states that 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 also have tried to implement these laws well rick that's exactly what rick was referring to was the georgia case in which we really had an unintended consequence of the law i mean to now move you up so if they've considered it to be gross negligence to me that means you had to come in with a headache and they cut your leg off or something. That's gross negligence. But in this particular case, there, there was some, some strange words used by plaintiffs' experts as to what constitutes gross negligence. And I think what had happened is it triggered then an investigation of the physician's license. It can be suspended. Sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for. Here in Michigan, we were going for the same change in the wording, which is the standard at which you are judged to be negligent. And we had to pause and take a breath on this thing because it is frightening. Greg, you also get into this, what qualifies you to be an expert witness in terms of these states? Is there um, any movement towards you know, only emergency physicians can testify against emergency physicians or, or where does that stand? It, 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 in doing this research, it just it was appalling it just how weak a lot of these expert witness or expert witness reforms are in all these states. And and even if you make it so that it's all emergency physicians, unfortunately, you still have cases like this one in Georgia where you have two respected emergency physicians testifying and they just seem to not understand the concepts of standard of care. And and so it's just it's really, really hard to police ex, expert witnesses, period. Well, we've talked many times in the past about the efforts of AAEM and ASEP to try to rein in these witnesses, but I think that we have to acknowledge that very, very few physicians have been sanctioned uh, at all. Um, the other thing you get into is uh, laws specifically protecting emergency physicians and others bound by EMTALA. There's nothing like that specifically uh, here in California, but apparently you list a bunch of states where they do recognize that unique obligation of emergency physicians. Well, we've talked a little about about Georgia and just basically a, a different burden of proof in these cases, and South Carolina has something similar. Utah has something similar, and, and what I thought was interesting when I did the research is that in Utah, this doesn't apply if you can review the records of the patient. So the idea is that in a lot of these cases, we have no information. The patient comes in without any data as far as what medications they take. But in Utah, they say, well, that's really, if you can get that information, then no, this, this kind of added protection doesn't apply. Seven is rationalizing the weak correlation between malpractice 
premium costs and tort reform. Now, what's that about? Well, the idea is that I thought going into this that malpractice is a pretty easy equation, and that's you pass tort reform, litigation goes down, your premiums go down, doctors are happy, people move there, everything kind of goes in line. And what I realize is that tort reform on paper does not always equal a good medical malpractice environment. And within that, it's interesting how many of these tort reform states still, the doctors are still paying through the nose in malpractice premiums. And some of that is is uh, what Greg Henry touched upon in that it's there's such a delay and a lag. Reforms are passed and it's generations later that we actually see anything happen. So I think part of it's that. Part of it is are there insurance companies that are pocketing this money? Maybe in some cases, I don't know. Well, you know, when the Texas had its reform in 2003, there was a flood of insurance companies coming into Texas because, yes, there were many fewer suits and there were decreases in premiums, but were did the decrease in premiums, were they directly parallel to the decrease in suits? So the answer is honestly is no. These insurance companies were making a lot of money because, yes, they dropped their premiums, but not to a level consistent with what they were paying out. By the way, in any state with a cap, what you're dealing with is not severity, but frequency. The big thing in Texas would is the number of suits went down because half of the money of an insurance company goes into what they call the allocated loss adjustments. Lawyers, experts, processing, putting money aside, trips to Barbados. You know, having been a president of two malpractice companies, let me tell you, we spent less money on the various injured parties than we did in paying all the crap around the side. So whenever you hear allocated loss adjustment, that means every piggy who's come up to the trough to eat your money. And there are a lot of them. Eight is what is more powerful, state laws or state cultures? Very interesting. Give us a little spin there, Greg. So what this boils down to is a medical malpractice environment within a state is dictated by that state's culture. And it, it is not, the actual laws within the state are only part of it. And probably the best way to illustrate this is with some polar opposite examples. And you look at on one side of the equation, Iowa and Minnesota, very similar states in a lot of ways. They have no reform, a positive reform in, in those two states. Yet there are there's hardly any litigation there. Uh, malpractice premiums per doctor are in the $8,000 to $10,000 range. Yet the door is wide open for these lawsuits to happen, for plaintiff attorneys, for families to, to run and sue, but it just doesn't happen. And my brother lives in Minneapolis, and we always call it Minnesota nice. And, and I think there's something to be said for that. On the flip side, let's look at Florida, where Florida in the last 10 years, they've made a lot of efforts to pass some good reform, whether it be caps, they, they have some additional reforms for emergency physicians, yet things really haven't changed. It is absolutely still a risky state with emergency physicians in Dade County, as, as Greg Henry mentioned, paying some of the highest premiums in the country. And I think that regardless of what reforms you throw at Florida or New York and some of these other, other states, you can't dial back a legal culture that's just completely gotten out of control. Yeah, you mentioned some examples that the um, average malpractice premium in Minnesota is estimated to be $8,500, while the average premium in Florida is estimated to be $79,000, a tenfold difference. It's like astronomical. 
And again, that goes back to the frequency question. Um, when you have a lot of frequency, you're paying all these administrative costs, legal costs, lawyer costs, expert witness costs. It's the frequency which kills insurance companies. You also did quote the number I always find interesting in terms of the uh, Medicare spending being $6,900 per capita in Minneapolis and 13800 in Miami. These are absolutely double in Miami. And Medicare spending, which uh, basically these patients are just as sick in Minneapolis as they are in Miami. And it's kind of like, uh, holy smokes. Number nine is, does tort reform improve an emergency physician's quality of life? So I brought up some personal examples in this particular question. And what I focused on, I actually started my career in Chicago in medical school and residency. And it was just amazing. I was, I was in medical school at Loyola. I graduated in 2003. And that was kind of the, the height of this malpractice crisis. And I remember talking to the OB-GYNs I was working with just about just how miserable they were in that they had so many cases in which they knew they were right, but they just couldn't fight because it was just too expensive and it was just much cheaper for them to settle. And it it definitely affects the morale, you know, within the physician community. And uh, the same thing happened even uh, in the emergency medicine setting in both med school and residency, just the the way we approach things. It was hard to get specialists, even at these big trauma centers in Chicago, to uh, take call, especially the, the pediatric orthopedists and pediatric neurosurgeons. And when I moved over to Indiana, it was amazing just how different the morale was. And, and frankly, as an emergency physician, my job was much easier because never had to worry about specialists coming in to see patients. No, nobody really viewed the environment as being so high risk. And with the, the medical review panel in place, I always felt that regardless of what happened, I could practice good medicine, good common sense medicine. And regardless of if there was a bad outcome, I would probably get a good shake and, you know, a fair assessment by the medical review panel. And in Texas, it's much the same. We, we talked about Texas ad nauseum, but, you know, the morale here is very high. As we talked about, physicians are flooding to this state, and maybe it's because of tort reform, maybe it's for other reasons. Well, the flooding is also related to the fact that I've heard that the, some hourlies there are in excess of $400 an hour, and that with the explosion of the freestanding emergency departments, in excess of 70 of them, I think just in the Dallas area itself, that there's a dearth of emergency physicians, and so people are willing to pay serious, serious money to work in, in Texas. So there's no worry substantially about litigation. And the hourly rates there are, I think, probably right now the highest in the country by a multiple. I mean, you can't get anything near $400 an hour in California. But then again, it doesn't rain in Southern California. (laughs) (laughs) The last part is where do we go from here? What's your assessment uh, about where do we go from here? Well, it's interesting because I've had a lot of colleagues reach out to me and say, okay, so, you know, you've talked about the states that are bad, the states that are good. Should we just give up on some of these states? I mean, what what do we do and what what reforms do we push? And what's interesting is that the the thing that seems to be in vogue now is the idea, and, and it's actually, Greg Henry will appreciate this, this is the Michigan model, and it's the idea of basically an early arbitration, disclosure, discussion, apology with the idea that if there's been a bad outcome, we just cut to the chase, get everyone together, offer some money up front, and we save a lot of time, expense, and headache. 
And I don't know how I feel about that and, and how effective that's going to be. That is, I, I feel like society is moving more towards that as opposed to caps and some of these other traditional reforms. But I am skeptical. And again, it goes back to what I think is the most ideal medical legal environment. And that's one in which if, if I haven't done anything wrong and there's been a bad outcome, I want a state that takes the time to try to work through this and state in the record that malpractice and, and negligence was not committed. And so what I hope that we can push for in all these states is this medical legal or, or medical review panel, much like they have in Indiana. To me, the more I think about that and I think about my six years of practice in there, I think that's the most fair for doctors and the most fair for patients. Yeah, I would have to agree. Here in California, we don't have anything like that. But we do have the medical board is basically taking its role much, much more seriously in recent years. And you're right. If you have any complaint to the medical board, they feel obligated to review in, in detail. So you might not get sued, but the medical board may come knocking at your door, which may be in some cases worse than being sued. Well, I think you have to separate out two things. The malpractice panel in Indiana, which I am very much in favor of, is not the medical board. There, in many states, there are people who are non-physicians on the medical board and is often political. I've had to go defend doctors who are about to lose their license, for example, in the state of New York. There's no overregulated state like the state of New York. And they came up with the damnedest crap about what doctors shouldn't shouldn't be doing. And these are not some of them are non-physicians inventing this stuff. Be careful what you wish for. I want malpractice reviewed by people who do it for a living, just like I do, and in the situation that I do. I don't want it just academics on that board. I want people who work for a living in the community saying that's reasonable or unreasonable. I'll I'll live with that any day. Well you have to be careful with you what you wish for because we know of some well-known colleagues who have said some really disappointing things about the care rendered by their colleagues and so yes now that wasn't yes, it wasn't in the in the setting of a medical review board it was where you're being paid to take a position not, well I, I that's not technically correct i mean they're not paid to take a position but they're paid a lot to render a position regarding a, a case and then and then defend it Let's go to some emails. The first this is one called, is... This is called mailbag, Greg. You know, I, I have to acknowledge that when we get these emails, and I'm certainly not going to say that this is a, a promise, but Greg, at least 80% of the time, gives his phone number and says, call me, which I think is just an extraordinarily nice thing for you to do, Greg. I've told you that before, but you've been so generous with your time to these people who call in who are all screwed up. Yes. <laughs> and some of them need a, a friendly voice to talk to, I promise you, because as you know, there's no there's no bad day in your life like the day the summons and complaint gets dropped on your desk. It's it's not a good thing. Well, anyway, Chuck Pennock says that uh, we continually make reference to the devastation of a lawsuit at a personal level. He goes on, um, one issue that I have not heard you address is that sometimes you get sued or should be sued because you just screwed up. You continually make reference to the devastation of a lawsuit at a personal level. One issue that I have not heard you address is that sometimes you get sued or should be sued because you just screwed up. Having done that several times in my 30 years, 
Fortunately, having been sued only twice for minor issues, I think that part of the personal struggles come from feeling like you are the only physician out there who has just screwed up. You listen to guys like you who never mention personal mistakes and it only reinforces the alienation that comes from screwing up. So, Greg, we need a confession. We need some mea culpas here that you have screwed up. Oh, my God. Of the 2,400 <laughs> cases I've reviewed, 2,000 of them were mine. So, I, I mean, uh, we've all, each one of us at the end of the shift has said, you know, that wasn't quite right. Or I could have done that job better. And I think God is basically kind. I could have been sued sometimes, and I wasn't. And, and so it's just interesting that the two times in my career, my 40 years, I got named. Both of those were crap. But there were plenty of times when it, it could have happened. And I've just been a lucky guy. I've just been a very fortunate individual. And I, I'm willing to admit it. But I'll tell you, each time I got a piece of paper, it was a dark cloud. It was not a good day. Well, you know, a lot of it is just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, we've seen these cases of necrotizing fasciitis that initially were seen as some kind of, well, it must be some kind of musculoskeletal thing. There wasn't, you know, tachycardia. There wasn't any crepitus. And the next thing you know, the next day, this person is in, is in a life-threatening situation. We've seen tons of cases of spinal epidural abscesses, which were initially missed and then come back the next day. And there's, it's such a trap. I mean, so many of these people are using drugs in the first place. They have back pain. You know, they've been there before. And it's just a setup for, for errors. And so the answer is, have we made mistakes? You bet we've made mistakes. And frankly, if I was a fly on the wall of the ER, there would be a thousand times more lawsuits than there are now. So the fact is, is this is just the tip of the iceberg. And, and yeah, there's lots and lots of mistakes, many of them, frankly, negligent. That results in nobody being sued. And so we all got to have to acknowledge that. And, you know, we've all had it. So, Chuck, we are not without sin. We are not without <laughs> sin. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, uh, copying Christ's famous line when he said, let those without sin cast the first stone. This first stone. Then he looks over and says, mother, put that rock down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that was it. Actually, oh, okay. Chuck also said, catch this, uh, Greg. Rick, you made the right decision to have the plaintiff's attorney on your show. Any opportunity to learn from an adversary should not be passed up. Because we have been stoned now tw when we had two pe uh, uh, plaintiff's attorneys on. One, I have to admit, was pretty egregious. And that was the one we had, the fellow in Hawaii. And, yeah. and then we had, more recently, an emergency physician who has been the most successful single attorney in California at suing physicians, and he gave us his time, and he was very generous with it, and, you know, he, you don't have to agree with him, but you need to understand that these are the people who are going after you. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. We took a lot of crap from a lot of readers saying, oh, you shouldn't have those people on. They're lying, cheating, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, that's that's just redundant because they're called lawyers. We understand no, that. I, you know, but, but you ought to know what's going to hit you in court, how they think, how they operate. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that Chuck 
has has a good attitude about having these people on. Yeah, I, I think that we swore off of it because of the amount of negative feedback we had. But, you know, I, I wasn't too ha- happy to do that. Greg, any thoughts in the, in in that vein? Uh, not yeah. that not that you've ever made a mistake, I'm sure, in your in your tender years. <laughs> I I uh, I can amplify what you said in terms of yeah the first question. Abs- absolutely, the the cases that I've where I've I've frankly looked at lab values wrong. I mean, the troponin was blatantly elevated, and I just didn't see it. And sure enough, a lot of times there's other safeguards in the system that the nurse catches it, even though I missed it, or it just happens that the, the patient came back because they were having ongoing pain. There's a lot of safety nets in the system so that you really can make an error and still not have it turn into a bad outcome. And I, I have been sued once, and it was for a, uh, a mismeningitis case in which you know, I saw the patient two hours into uh, their illness, and so they didn't have any of the hallmark signs. It's similar to what you had talked about with the necrotizing fasciitis and that initial stage. And so that's a case that just blew my mind when it came through, whereas I've, I feel like I've had so many other bad cases. So, And then uh, to talk a little bit about the, the plaintiff's attorney, I, I've, I've been a longtime listener, by the way. I don't, I don't know if you know that. And I, I love it when you guys have those guys on. I love hearing about reptile strategy and all these other things that they do to, to uh, the theatrics involved. And, and it, only, it only helps me know how to be more defensive with my documentation. Yeah, I, I kind of view it uh, that way as well. Greg, you want to do the next one from uh, Robert Weiss? Yeah. Or I'll do Robert, it. I don't care. You know, since I wrote this thing up, this is like a long one. So well, we'll, we'll, we'll get the, the salient features here, Rick. Rob writes to us, and this is, a, this is an interesting case. And, and we've shortened it down a little bit. But the bottom line is he saw a nine-year-old girl with a two-day-old buckle fracture of the, uh, of the wrist from sledding. She went to the ED from an urgent care. Here's the story. The urgent care doctor wants the EP, the emergency physician, to call an orthopedic doctor to get it casted. Now, why the hell <laughs> you've got a non-displaced fracture that you've call, got to call in a, an orthopedic surgeon for? If I actually made a phone call like that, they would come down and slap me around. I, I'd have to be- beg them. They'd say, what are you doing, fool? This patient needs nothing. Well, here's the funny part. The urgent care physician insisted, and he noted, that that he call an ambulance to transfer the girl to the ED, which was 15 minutes away. I, I, I don't understand that at all. Oddly enough, the parents refused the ambulance, and the urgent care docs makes them sign out on an against medical advice form. Now they're mad. Okay, now they're mad. On arrival, the parents expect that there's an orthopedic surgeon waiting to whisk their child into that cast room. Yeah, like that's going to happen. And he called the, the annoyed orthopedic surgeon uh, who actually was in the hospital minutes away sort of thing. And he said the splint's okay and to follow up with him. Well, back at the hospital, this affiliated in care they note that this, they had refused the ambulance transport and this triggers an automatic social services intervention of protective services as if the kid is being abused in some way. Now, can you imagine how mad the parents are when the next day they get a visit from social services 
to make sure that they aren't abusing their kid. So now the parents refused to pay the bill, saying it was unnecessary. They also balked at the urgent care bill because of the way they were handled. And when, when you get down to this case, there was a whole lot of nothing. And of course, the emergency docs now in, in trouble for communication failures, for not calling in the orthopod earlier, all these other sorts of things. This was just a big mess. And what do you do to protect yourself in this case, Rick? Well, this, uh, this was an example of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. The urgent care doctor clearly was an idiot. The, the, the thought of calling an ambulance was absurd. You were set up to be thrown under the bus. If I was the insurance company, I wouldn't pay for two visits either. Seems a letter to the urgent care medical director would have given you some comfort, Robert. But again, you might have never worked there because he noted in his longer explanation that he occasionally did some shifts there. So this is a great example where some other physician's idiotic behavior can drag you in as a result of the parents being so frustrated and so angry and so they, they're just going to, going to, you know, reach out to everybody who was involved in, and, and I frankly don't blame them. Social service, automatic referral because they refused the ambulance. I mean, did anybody kind of pay any attention to this to say this was legitimate or not? I mean, these poor parents were, were like really beaten up by the system. Yeah, it's, it, it's just not right. I feel bad for the parents. I feel bad for the ER doctor who got caught in the middle of this thing. In any event, I don't know how you completely stomp this out. I would pass on one word to every doctor listening. Be kind initially in your discussion of every other physician. You don't know, you weren't there, you don't know what happened, you don't know what they said. So I tend to take the view of, I'm not going to pour gasoline on this fire and make it worse uh, until I have some facts here in this case. No, Greg, this uh, urgent care center doctor was an idiot. Yeah, well, (laughs) of course he's an idiot, but you know what? I'm going to be very slow to use those words in front of the parents. And, and, And I might say, he was overly concerned. <laughs> I, I, and and that, I think that's nicer than saying idiot. No, as, as a general rule, absolutely. And we've, we've basically, I've seen multiple examples where physicians through careless wordage have harmed other physicians unnecessarily because they were trying to defend their own practice. And in the process of that, they had to blame somebody else. Yes. So, yes, I agree. It is best to be charitable to your colleague physicians. And, yeah, if it turns out that a mistake was made and there was negligence, it will all come out uh, down the road. But you don't have to be the one to be pointing the fingers in the beginning of these kinds of affairs. Greg, your thoughts? I think you guys covered all of it. Yeah. Greg, Henry, you have some cases that you wanted to cover, didn't you, buddy? I want to I want to point out a couple of cases to you. And Rick, take have you taken your Xanax yet? Because this is just going to make you uh, mad. But I, we've got to talk about this case. And of course, where was it? Florida. And by the way, the two other cases I have are from Illinois. So the other Greg, you can get ready to uh, have a heart attack too. But I want to present a case to you: a failure to perform testing when conjunctivitis is diagnosed in a teenager. Now listen to this case. 
It has everything we need for 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 a perfect movie of the week. You know, it has pathos. It has pain. It has a PA involved in the diagnosis. Now, listen to this. A 17-year-old went to the emergency room and at a hospital, which I will not mention, in July 2010, with complaints of pain in and around the right eye. Physician's assistant saw the case, diagnosed conjunctivitis. I think she called it pink eye. A supervising physician, an emergency medicine physician, signed off on the diagnosis. It's unclear whether they actually saw the case. You want to okay. bet? You want to bet whether they okay. saw the case? Uh, Rick, be nice now. Be charitable. This is July 2010. The plaintiff was given a prescription for antibiotics discharged and even, according to the family, resolved in two days. Now, let's move ahead a little bit to November of 2010, okay? July, August, September, October, November. The child drops over unconscious. And what they found out was the child had some sort of aneurysmal dilatation which had ruptured, which they found at, well, they initially found it when she was comatose, confirmed at autopsy. Now, what the plaintiff claimed was because the child came in with a conjunctivitis, they should have been worked up with a CTA to make certain that this redness and dilatation of the eye wasn't perhaps a sign of an aneurysm in the head. Greg, okay? can, we go, can we go on to the next case now? No. Because <laughs> I, don't, you I, don't, hear, I don't want to hear any more of this. This is an $11.88 million net verdict in Florida. Oh, my God. And they actually found some plaintiff's experts, a guy from, I'm uh, not even going to mention his name. Come on, and mention his name, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Michael Bauman from Falmouth, Maine. This is a closed claim, right? Well, this is a closed claim. This is a matter of public record, right? Yeah. You're uh, just reading the public record. I'm reading the public record Thank of the case. Much. But what he actually said was, no, on these type of cases, when the redness is only in one eye, that you work them up to make sure there's something, not something behind that eye which is causing the problem. Can you believe that crap? Unbelievable. This is a jury decision. went for $11.88 million. Well, you know, this a, is, this is a, a great example of absolutely superb lawyering. Superb, superb. lawyering. And, you know, we don't know the, the details here. It, it, it sounds so absurd. And yet, you know, if you got 11 people or so that even in Florida, there, there may be more to this than, than meets the eye. So maybe we are being a little uncharitable. Yeah, meeting the eye is a, is, is a very good analogy, Rick. I'm a neuro guy. That's what I write on. If I'd seen this kid, it's unlikely I would have picked up. And, and there's no previous history of nothing in this child that I would have picked up this disease entity. Is it tragic that their kid is dead? Absolutely. Is it negligence? Oh, my God. God help us. I mean, this... This is an example of, of where, I don't know, I, I, I want to slit my wrists or take cyanide or something because it's just that bad. Comments. 
from either of you. Well, I'm wondering, is it the fact that this was patient was seen by the PA, there's no documentation of the a supervising physician seeing this patient, is that really what broke this case wide open? And, and on the stand, they said, Dr. So-and-so, what did you think of the patient? And he said, no, I, I just have my PA see the patient. I'm too lazy to see him myself. Because that could really rile up a jury, and I could see it just unraveling from there. Because that's the only thing that I could see. Other than that, it's just wrong on so many levels. <laughs> All right. Now, now that I've got your blood pressure boiling, let's go to the sunshine state of California, the Golden Gates. And this is a failure to recognize a transient ischemic attack and calcifications of the vertebral artery, which were on the CT scan, stroke not properly, uh, promptly diagnosed, leading to quadriplegia. Quadriplegia? Quadroplegia. What kind of stroke? This is some kind of different. This is not a left metal cerebral artery stroke. That's for sure. This is the this is in the vertebral basilar system where you can get both sides of the body. Ten million dollar Illinois settlement. No, it was a California settlement. No, no. This is actually I, I made a mistake. This is my Illinois case that I'd put aside for you. And which county do you think it took place in? Any guesses here? Cook County, baby. Cook County, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Who else would do this? You got to remember, if you're in the southern half of the state, you know, those are Republicans. They ain't going to go with this. And it's very interesting to note that they get into the TPA discussion, what should be given. Do any of you have a study that shows that TPA in the posterior fossa of the brain is of any value? I just want to know. No. Because not, they said. I'm not well, aware. But, I, there, there may be, but I'm not aware of any. I'm not aware of that. The other thing is, this is somebody who, it, it was very difficult story if you, if you read through this, is a very long involved case. But they thought that they should have had an immediate MRI and they criticized the emergency doctor because a radiology expert came in and said, I think I see some calcifications on the CT scan in the vertebral artery. How many of you have picked up fine calcifications on the CT scan on the vertebral basilar artery. Well, that's frankly, just, that's even, just crap. Even if they had it, it does not, you know, that calcifications have been there for years for crying out loud. And so yes. the issue is, is that, is that the, the cause of this pathology? I think one of the issues is, is what were the manifestations of this TIA? Because the manifestations of this TIA had to be really pretty unusual because if you're going to basically say the stroke resulted in quadriplegia, then it would be very interesting to note what the presenting findings in the TIA were, because they would probably have to be similar but less severe. Don't well, you think, Greg? Le let's say it was an obvious TIA in the vertebral basilar system. It involved cerebellar findings, both sides of the body, yada, yada. What do you do for it? What do you actually do? I don't, you know, this is stuff I literature I look at all the time. And to, to say, oh, they could have they could have given them TPA and they'd be okay. In advance or, of? In advance of, or we could have taken them to the operating room or to the angio suite and they could have done a removal of a clot. There's there isn't one paper in the literature that supports mechanical removing of clots in the brain vascular system, not one. 
I mean, this is this is all occasional papers about Mikey likes it. But anyway, I just thought I, I would end this thing with some some real angering cases. Greg, and, any and, any thought there about uh, this? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to not be practicing Chicago anymore. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That's the solution. Exactly. Let's move yeah. out of Chicago. The weather stinks. You know, I, I just because you can get a decent pizza there doesn't mean you need to live there. I yeah. can although, although Chicago is a great city. Uh, you can live Wisconsin. in Chicago and drive to Wisconsin or Indiana. Make it, make it yeah. happen that way. Yeah, make it happen that way. Now, you want to do one more, Greg, or, or what? No. I would like to move on to some, uh, some wines. Okay, go ahead. All right. I'm watching the clock here. You're okay. You're okay. I'm okay. Yeah. All right. Well, again, when I'm traveling around, I get more crap about wine of the month than I do anything else. Nobody cares what we say, but they get mad about wine of the month. All right. So now I'm I'm taking care of a few people who say, well, you're very uh, centered on America and all that. I said, shut up. Okay. We make great wines, but here we go. Here's some here's some South African wines which I'm going to recommend basically because I've just had them. There is something called Neil Ellis, E L L I S. This is Western Cape, South Africa. He's got a 2012 Chardonnay which is just terrific. Twenty one bucks a bottle, and by the way. I think you can get stuff just as good from California for 15 bucks a bottle. But there's a mention of one of the South African wines, which is up and running. A second one is the Mann Family Wines. Now, you notice most of these people have English names, old families living in South Africa. They have a Chardonnay. It's the 2013 Chardonnay, which they do. It got an 89 and it's 11 bucks a bottle. You know, Greg, we don't need any wine from any other country other than the country of Cali- <laughs> the country of California, you know. All right. You know uh, that. The, well, wait a second. We have states that would argue with you and I'm only going to mention one other because this was a terrific wine. Portugal still makes ports. That's why they call it port comes from Portugal. And Wares has been in the business a long time. It's actually Wares Symington is the family wines. Very good. They have out now, catch this, a fantastic port, Douro Portugal, 2011. And it is close to 90 in ratings, depending on who you look at. $9 a bottle. I'm Nine su- bucks a bottle. I'm surprised Rick. they can even ship it uh, from for $9. I don't know how they do that. Now, most of the other wares that I've been drinking over the years, you know, 25 30 that sort of stuff per bottle. Nine bucks a bottle, and they're willing to review it in the wine advocate and say, drink this stuff. God, I love it. Nine bucks a bottle, and it's Wares Symington's Family Wines, the 2011 Get Some. Okay, listen, uh, I'm looking at the clock here. Uh, you know, if we have a few minutes and to give these people who subscribe their money's worth, do you have any last words of wisdom, either of you? we got a couple of minutes. Greg, you always have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you this. I was in California two days ago in at Stanford, as a matter of fact, nicely hosted. I honestly believe 
that what we do as physicians is we take histories and we do physicals. In talking with the residents, a lot of stuff which we were trained to do has now become semi-passe. Nobody touches anybody anymore. And I think that it does more than make diagnoses. And, and believe me, I have two cases I'm going to present on some later shows where if they'd only taken the shirt off, they would have seen that that two-year-old had a scar on their chest from previous thoracic surgery, child not undressed. Well, there, we were talking about some cases, and it was amazing that the kind of stuff that we were trained to do, nobody does anymore. Why don't you touch the patient? Why don't you feel their head? Why don't you do things to make them know that you acted like a doctor? I, I, I'm sure Greg will confirm this. There's so much anger in lawsuits that if it looks like you took care of them, even if you examined them upside down or wrong, they believe you did something for them. And, and we, I don't know why the residencies have now tended to go away with this, but everybody is into ordering the, the fanciest, most expensive new test. And I don't think it's saved our butts at all. Sometimes common sense does work. Well, you know, you, you hear these cases all the time where the patients complain, the doctor never examined me, or the doctor spent two minutes with me. And in many cases, that's probably true. And it's like the expectation of the patients are that you're going to examine them. We have rubber hammers that test reflexes that are totally meaningless clinically you know that greg but but the fact is they want you to whack their knee and they want you to listen to their chest it's irrelevant whether you listen to their chest but they want you to do it because that's what they expect the expect aren't you going to listen to my heart doctor you know right exactly and and you know i don't i don't have the heart i don't have the heart to tell them you know what uh, if I actually thought you had a valve problem, <laughs> I'd get an ultrasound of that valve. <laughs> but uh, well, you but know, I, it's I, time spent. It's time spent with a patient. Absolutely. I think it's at the two extremes that it really matters, particularly where the elderly, I think, expect it. The elderly have lots of things wrong with them, and they expect it. It's what they've been used to in the past. And I think at the other extreme, parents expect you to do a good job on their kids. They want you to touch that kid and look all over and make sure that that kid is okay because they're uh, worried. They're, they, they have no re good frame of reference. Is this kid sick or not? And you know what the, whether that kid's sick or not when you walk in the room, but that doesn't matter. There's a show, and you've talked about that over and over and over again. And if you leave a residency not understanding about the show, you know, you've really you've been – you know, shortchanged, frankly. You've been, de you've been deprived of a, of a very important aspect of what we do, which is reassurance therapy. And uh, God, if everybody I came in actually had something, I couldn't handle that much disease. Well, let me just, you know, close by telling you about the abstract we reviewed recently. And we did an author interview where they looked at before and after in terms of the ordering of tests before and after electronic medical records. After electronic medical record went, was put in, testing went up 77%, 77%. What does that say about us and order sets and all those those things that we think are, are pretty cool? Somebody's paying for that 77% increase. And I think that we just got to be more doctor-like to tell you the truth. 
But then again, that's this. I'm just banging at the moon. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I understand that. Yes, Greg, I really want to thank you for this extraordinary effort that you've taken in writing this. I would really, really, really like to see the whole thing. And because I think it has so much value, and uh, you've put so much work into it, I think that this needs to kind of get out there. And uh, you know, you, you gave us a, like a little preview in EP Monthly, but geez, I think that the uh, entire effort that you put into this really needs to be disseminated to emergency physicians. So you know, I think that I think that there needs to be a way to do that, and I'm hopeful that you're in agreement. Although. Does AAEM own this thing because they are? <laughs> no, no, it, I, it's all me, and uh, we will definitely make that happen. And I, I want to thank you for your kind words, and I also want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on the show. As I said, I'm a longtime listener and a longtime fan. I want to thank you guys for everything you do, and I think I speak on behalf of everyone else listening right now, but uh, everything you do is impacts me and my practice uh, significantly, and I'm, I'm sure I speak for everyone else on that. Greg, that's really sweet of you. I really appreciate it. And Greg Henry, you got anything to say signing off here, Chief? Just saying uh, goodbye to all of you next month. Lots of travel and looking forward to in October seeing you all. We'll be in Chicago for the Scientific Assembly. So see you then. Bye-bye. We'll see you guys there. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, thanks to both of the Gregs. And we're signing off and talk with you next month. Bye for now. 